Welcome to episode 458 with my guest, Karen Stefano. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a, uh, it's a place for honesty. No matter what is going on in our lives, mentally challenging situations, diagnosed medical conditions, traumas, sexual dysfunction, shitty weather. What if we did an episode on shitty weather? It's a little drizzly out. Let's talk about that for an hour and a half. Uh... Just to remind you, if you are a new uh, listener or a regular listener, I am not a therapist. I'm a former stand-up and TV host. Just started doing this podcast in 2011. Just uh, I was like, I think this is something that uh, people could benefit from that I might enjoy doing. And it just kind of took off. And I lost interest in doing stand-up and doing uh, TV hosting. And here I am, nine years later. Eight years later, I always get confused, the math on on years. Um, let's read a couple of surveys. Oh, if, if you uh, don't su- subscribe to this podcast, but you want to help the podcast, subscribing is a great free way to help the podcast out. There are other ways you can help too. You can do financial donations and stuff like that, spread the word through social media. Anything helps. And if you don't want to help... That's fine, too. Sit on your couch. Put your thumb in your ass. Stare out the window and enjoy. This is a this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself so very cherry. And she writes, I love good days when I don't have to manage my mental health constantly. Days when I love to be alive and actually feel like a part of the world. I also love the incredible fine details in nature and the little things. So good so good being present out in nature and just noticing things actually just being present even in the city yesterday i was uh taking gracie for a for a skate i put on i put on my rollerblade i couldn't look more dorky i put on i got shorts on uh put on my rollerblades a helmet and uh, we we rollerblade, and she loves it. She gets so excited just when I start, just when I pull the chair up to start putting my rollerblades on. She gets so excited, but it's it's kind of this uh, fine line between taking in nature as I'm skating with her. There's this little bike path near my house that, for being in a city, is you know I'm, I'll take it. It's it's not exactly nature, but it's not a crowded street with uh, a bunch of billboards. But I, I like to try to take in the nature as I'm as I'm skating with her. But there's rocks and twigs and stuff like that on the bike path, and so I got to kind of keep my wits uh, about me. So it's a it's a combination of falling on my face and uh, and being present. But the thing about probably just concentrate on the most is just soaking in how much she enjoys it (laughs) just imagine what she's thinking in her head like she's such a big shot and she's controlling this three block area that i skate her around putting her putting her scent down every every 20 feet she's the fucking best i'm so glad she came into my life 
Speaking of dogs, here's a love filled out by a woman who calls herself hurting on the inside. And she writes, I love waking up in the morning next to my dog as he is lying on his back, legs up in the air with what looks like a grin on his face. (laughs) That's so easy to picture that. Oh, I love, love anything related to the way that dogs sleep. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com. If you have never tried online counseling, I really recommend it. I do it every Monday afternoon, and I love not having to leave my house. And I feel that I've done in-person therapy before, and I feel as much of a connection doing video as I do in person. And, uh, and I love my counselor. And I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. So if you're interested in trying it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast. Then fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. This is an awful some moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Johnny Toxic 1985 and he writes I have cerebral palsy and use a wheelchair. The other day I got some quick lunch at Panera Bread and as I was leaving a man told me I did a good job. What had I done? I got napkins from a dispenser. This inspiring story is soon to be a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie starring RJ Mitt Bruce Dern, and Octavia Spencer. And then this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Elia, and she writes, this is not actually my awful, my awful moment, but I'm sharing it anyway because of its perfection. It came from a friend of my boyfriend, so I've given them fake names and left out location names. And of course, I'm paraphrasing the conversation. So... John comes into Bob's store one day looking utterly shell-shocked. Bob asks, what's wrong? John says, my dad just killed himself last night. He jumped in front of a train. Bob, oh my God, man, that's horrible. Can I do anything for you? John mumbles, well, I'm pretty hungry. Can we go get something to eat? How about that Euro place down the road? Bob, yeah, let's go. They do so. As they walk in... John gets a very strange look on his face. The Euro restaurant, for reasons that are a mystery, was decorated floor to ceiling with train memorabilia. Bob knew this, but had gotten food there so many times and was so familiar with the place that there may as well have been blank white walls in his mind. Bob, oh my God, John, I'm so sorry. We can go somewhere else. John is quiet for a moment, his eyes taking in the decor, before saying calmly, no, this is perfect. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And we're just all in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks are so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a saga of hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work 
to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Karen Stefano, who uh, has a book called What a Body Remembers, and uh, it's about a lot of things, but mostly about the ripples of experiencing trauma. And you're a, a criminal defense attorney and a badass. In the opening chapter of the book, you describe the way you go about defending somebody who was guilty. Um as as his defense attorney, you can't necessarily say that because you didn't ask him. Did did you? Right. Did you do it? Didn't ask him. Didn't care. Uh, I I want to set the stage for the personality of somebody like you, so that we can understand when we get into the assault and all the other stuff, the type of person that this is. Affecting because a lot of times I think when we talk about somebody who is assaulted, we don't tend to to think of them as being the, this kind of cutthroat alpha badass brilliant defense attorney. Um, would you recap or read something from that first chapter to kind of let us in on your thought process when you're going for the jugular in the courtroom? Yeah, and. I'll I'll read a, a short excerpt, uh, but in terms of where my head's at and how I, the victim of a brutal assault, came to be a criminal defense lawyer, that is that's described in detail in the book. A lot of people, when they hear about that before they've read the book, say, uh-uh. No, how can that happen? I can't accept that. When you read the book, it it makes a lot of sense. Right. And I pose a lot of theories about how I, the victim, and I'm using air quotes with that word because I don't like that word, um, came to become someone who is a steely advocate on behalf of her impoverished, uneducated, marginalized, victimized in their own way, bad clients. And so this chapter is the introduction to that latter uh, explanation, if you will. And uh, yes, in chapter one here, I am, it's a courtroom scene. Uh, we're, the jury's just been impaneled and we're giving opening statements. And the deputy DA has just given his opening statement uh, describing uh, violent assault, broad daylight, female victim, pistol whipped, uh, robbed, and uh, the, uh, the defendant, my client, Dwayne, uh, is arrested a short time later in a car fitting the description given by the victim and uh, with her purse minus some of its original contents. And so I'll just read briefly uh, when it's my turn in this chapter to give my opening statement. My opening statement is more vague 
as a criminal defense attorney, I cannot tell the jury that the evidence will show and then fail to deliver. As a criminal defense attorney, I can never quite be certain what the judge will let me get away with. In this trial, I know my client can't testify. This is for two reasons. One, he's likely guilty, and ethical rules prohibit an attorney from putting on perjured testimony. I don't know for a fact that Duane is guilty. I haven't asked. I don't ask that question. I don't care. All I care about is convincing a jury to see reasonable doubt. The other reason Duane can't testify is that he has prior convictions for similar crimes. If he testifies, the DA is allowed to impeach his credibility as a witness by bringing up those prior assaults. Once the jury hears about them, they will assume he's guilty. No question. I expected Duane to be a difficult client, but he isn't. He understands that of all the people in this world, I'm the only one on his side, the only one fighting for him. He likes me and knows I'm a good lawyer, a lawyer working like hell for him in a difficult case. On the second day of trial, the victim testifies. She is blonde and petite like me, in her early 30s like me. She is earnest, pretty, likable, and I imagine her as someone with whom I might sit down on a summer evening, sipping wine, sharing stories of our lives. She describes what happened in the bank parking lot. When the DA asks if the man who assaulted her is in the courtroom today, she points to Duane and shudders. The DA says, I have no further questions for this witness, Your Honor. Now it's my turn. Adrenaline shoots through my body as I stand for cross-examination. The sensation is pure, primal, and I feel how similar the coursing sense of power is to panic. And I'll stop right there unless you want me to continue. But the gist of the chapter without any spoilers, and again, this is just the opening chapter in the book, is how... I'm identifying with this victim in this case, and I identify with her because I was that victim on the witness stand uh, just about 10 years before I was doing this trial in, mm -hmm. my, in my capacity then as a defense lawyer, and how I know that my pummeling is probably making it worse for her, and yet my duty, ethically, morally is to my client and no one's looking out for my client and uh and yet at the end of the chapter again i'm identifying with her and i'm wondering if she feels how i felt when i was that victim on the witness stand so that's the introduction. And then we go back to 1984 at the time of my own assault and go kind of chronologically in time. Um, there, there were some details, too, in that <clears throat> first chapter where you talk about the color of clothing that you wore. You wore a soft pink. You made sure to touch the defendant's arm so that people could see you weren't afraid of him. Right. You made sure that he didn't... Uh, uh, show his uh, tattoos. Right. Um, his tattoo uh, said, uh, trust no bitches. 
Right. Right. Um, she said that she didn't see that he had a tattoo. And that would seem like, oh, oh, well, you know, that must be an issue. And you share, you know, with the reader the fact that he had dark skin and his tattoo was dark and it was almost impossible to see. So all of these things you, you are hiding. You're doing a great job. Uh, you know, whatever problems people may have with the fact that that's the way the legal system works and that is your duty is to legally defend this person. It's so hard to wrap your mind around this when you were on the other side. Right. And that's frankly why I think this story is interesting. Uh, as I share in the book, I went to law school with the intention of becoming a prosecutor. I wanted to put away the bad guys. And as I describe in the book, uh, just by twists of fate, that didn't happen for me. And I put my toe in the water at first to become a criminal defense lawyer, thinking, ugh, I can never do this. And then I felt, again, marginalized by prosecutors. They were so... It was so black and white to them. There were no gray areas. And how how it, so? Well, it, it just seemed like so you're you're in the you're in the windowless room outside of court doing plea negotiations with the de with the deputy DA and there weren't really any negotiations. It was like, you know, this is the deal, take it or leave it. You don't like it, go to trial. And it offended me, frankly, that they everything was so neat and clean and tidy to them. They didn't realize that people fuck up. People make mistakes. Some people don't have safety nets. And it, it kind of got under my skin. And then uh, doors opened for me in the criminal defense world and I walked through them. I found power in my voice in the courtroom, a voice that I didn't have as a victim. And again, in the book, I describe people's uh, psychoanalysis of how this can happen. You were a victim. You got just flayed on cross-examination cross when you were testifying against your assailant. And you didn't like it. And yet here you are doing the same thing. And there, everybody has their own theory for why that happened. And it's like, well, yeah, you, uh, you know, there's a, uh, there's a primal urge to hurt those who have hurt you in a similar way. And I think there's that, that stands up in our biology a little bit, but a little bit. And, um, so, so the, the anger they, are positing is even greater at the cross-examiner than it is at the person who assailed you. Uh, yeah, at that point, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Is, is that something you would agree with? Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, frankly, it depends on what day you ask me. I mean, because there's anger, there's anger at both. There's victimization at the hands of both. Um, I was on a, a literary podcast recently, and 
we were talking about forgiveness. And this host asked me, have you forgiven your assailant? And there's this long pause (laughs) (laughs) as I contemplate that. And, uh, and I still don't know if forgiveness is the right word. It's, uh, I've certainly processed, processed it and let go of it. That's for sure. But it's taken me a lot of time, a lot of time to do that. But just uh, one more thing, if if I may, in the category of people psychoanalyzing how a victim of an assault, a brutal assault, goes on to become a criminal defense lawyer, I was at a reading uh, in Minneapolis recently, and the host of that reading afterwards said to me, I know the answer, and the answer is that you felt marginalized. You felt like you weren't heard, and you weren't a person of resources. Uh, So you became a defense lawyer because you wanted to help those marginalized people. You You wanted to give the voiceless a voice. And I said, huh, that's not... That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to read uh, any sections from the book? Uh, yeah, I think I think I'll read chapter two, which is the only. It's a very brief chapter. Most of the chapters in the book are very brief uh, by design to keep the pace moving. This is the only kind of poetic uh, version in the book. The rest is pretty fact and and internal thought process oriented. But uh, with that introduction, this is chapter two. This is the story of the night I died. The night of the footsteps of the harmless pale haired man jogging down a sidewalk. The night I walked home from work in darkness. The night he turned into my hallway. The night our eyes locked and he showed me the knife in his hand. This is the night that still possesses my body. It was just a small tragedy, and yet it wasn't. It was like falling into a well, distant and far away as a glimpse of light, but there's no way to reach it. You're still you, just not the same version. You're stuck and can't climb out, can't even begin to know how to get out, and though there are people up there, people who want to help, Those people don't know how, and you don't know how to let them. So you stay stuck in that deep, dark, cold place that has swallowed you. After the night of the footsteps, I wanted to feel the strength of others, wanted to use it, to make it mine until I could get my own strength back or contrive some new strain of that thing called stability, personal power, But I couldn't find it. Not in the lover I wore out with my clinging need. Not in the mother who promised only to make it worse. Not in the brilliance of the university where I pretended to belong. Not in the department of gun-wearing, baton-toting cops, among whom I orbited 25 hours each week. They were all strangers. So in the days, weeks, months, years following my brief meeting with the man and his knife, I learned something. 
something I didn't want to know. Beneath the narrative of our days, there is another story, a story we don't get to write. One of the things that I really love that you capture in this book <clears throat> is the feeling of something missing, something being taken. Mm -hmm. um, people who have never experienced violation, um, as you and I were talking before we started recording, it's not the event, it's the ripples, the ripples. that fuck with you. Yeah. Um, talk about how it is... Actually, before we do that, uh, talk about being a campus police aide when this happened and how you felt amongst the police, kind of being one of them, but also not being one of them. Right. Uh, you were dating a guy who was also a campus police aide. The moment when the police came after you called 911 is such a striking moment. I it, actually would you would you read some of that from the from the book? I think it so perfectly captures that feeling of like being so alone even though these are quote unquote your people, these are law enforcement people. Uh yeah, and they're law enforcement people who mean well. Uh, but it, it was a really unusual situation. And just to uh, to give some background on what you've alluded to in the book, uh, at the time of my assault, I was a 19-year-old UC Berkeley sophomore. It was summer. I was taking summer classes, and I was working my job as a UC police department aide, we were called. And we wore cop uniforms. We had all the accoutrements of Cops minus the baton and the gun. The only thing that identified us as not being a real cop was a tiny little patch beneath this seal that, you know, if anyone mm -hmm. who's ever watched a cop show on TV, the seal on the arms of your uniform. And that was a small patch and it said aid. And my job was to patrol the campus in darkness. Anyone who's familiar with UC Berkeley knows that it's uh, a big campus. It's uh, a little crime-ridden. Uh, the streets surrounding Berkeley are definitely crime-ridden. And my job was to patrol. Uh, I had a police radio. And also my job was to walk other women home to safety. There was a campus police line, 642 walk. You called it. You said, I'm at the library. I'm alone. I need to walk home to my dorm. And I and other aides would be dispatched and then we'd walk mm -hmm. them home. Our only, you know, my only protection was the uniform and the police radio. And so after a shift, I, it's about midnight. I go to the police locker room, take off my uniform, put on my regular college young woman clothes, and I walk home to my apartment in darkness. And outside my apartment is where the, where the assault occurred. And after 
when Berkeley Police Department arrived at my apartment, I felt uh, really self-conscious about them not treating me like a real cop. I felt inferior. And, uh, and again, that was more about me and my feelings of uh, inadequacy than them. But uh, I'll, I'll read really briefly from the scene after the assault, after I've called 911, and when Berkeley PD arrives. And there's a sergeant in charge, and uh, uh, I'll take it from there. Sergeant Westenhoff asks more questions, filling in details of what happened, how it happened, where, when. She listens to my descriptions of the knife, jotting it all down into her notepad. How much time elapsed from the time you first saw him to the time he ran away? I can't honestly say how long it lasted. It happened so fast, yet each microsecond felt impossibly long, unimaginably drawn out. Time was no longer an objective measurement. Didn't they understand that? I release a heavy sigh. I don't know, five minutes total? Sergeant Westenhoff scribbles on her pad. I shift my focus back to Sergeant Westenhoff. I know what information is pertinent. A description of the man who attacked me. <clears throat> description of the incident. Facts only. No speculation. No embroidering the story. But what had happened in my mind while the incident occurred. But I can't resist. In that moment, I knew I had only two choices. Scream and have him slip my throat. Or don't scream and take my chances. I stop. Clear my throat. So I screamed. I watched the faces of these police grimace, bodies shifting in discomfort. I feel foolish now, childlike, a girl who has proven she is not one of their cop clan. Berkeley PD looks down on UCPD. UCPD doesn't see the kind of action Berkeley PD does. We're campus cops, one rung up from mall cops. And I'm not even a real campus cop. Another officer moves in. Did you scratch him at all? I don't think so. He has me hold out my hands, taking them loosely in his and giving them a once-over, like an impatient father checking to see if his child washed properly. And what, what goes on to answer your question, Paul, after that is that I'm still in my little universe of a campus police department, and the code of conduct in a police department is be tough, be tough, be tough. And that's what I tried to do. And in doing so, uh, as I describe in the book over several chapters, I do myself a huge psychological disservice. People reach out to me awkwardly because it's an awkward situation for people who are orbiting around the victim. Uh, and this was also 30 years ago. Right. Which... <sighs> yeah. Uh, we've come a long way. We've come yes. a long way in terms of our sensitivities. Um, but... When people would reach out, I pushed them, everybody, away. And my mantra was, I'm fine. I'm fine. 
Nothing even happened. I wasn't raped. It was just, you know, it's just a little knife attack. You know, I'm, I'm not the type of person to be affected by such a little trifle as this. Uh, and, you know, when we lie, we create distance. And, you know, just to survive in this world, I think we have to lie a little bit. We can't always go out with our innards on display, um, you know, crying at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even if we feel like crying at the grocery store, we have to try to keep it together. Um, but that's a lot of what that, this book is about, too, is, you know, lying. I imagine that you've come across people who tried to comfort you by saying, well, at least you weren't raped. Oh, yeah, that and also uh, more harshly, um, and I'll share with you, uh, you know, we've been promoting the book pretty aggressively and, and uh, uh, saying what it's about. And uh, there was recently a comment and, you know, you're like, Karen, grow a thicker skin here um, on there was a comment on Facebook by a woman who I don't no, obviously, and who obviously hasn't read the book. And her post was, you know, about the, the, like the book cover description. And her post was misleading. And someone else replied, question mark, question mark, question mark. And this woman, and this is like today, 2019, she wasn't even raped. And just even relating that to you, I just get shivers of anger and feeling misunderstood and hurt and it's like you've so diminished my experience and you're another woman and it's 2019 for fuck's sake so I think a lot of people, and and I don't know if it's because they've never had innocence taken from them, mm -hmm. but that's the real crime, is having the message pounded into your brain involuntarily that you are not safe in this world. Yeah. Whether it's a child that grows up in a marginally neglectful environment or somebody's been attacked and fights somebody off or screams or somebody who's been brutalized to the nth degree the message is still the same delivered into the cells of your body which is you can't relax right right and that's something that i experienced post-assault uh was just a debilitating sense of hypervigilance and hypervigilance, which um, obviously my assailant had kind of jogged up behind me. I thought he was harmless. He wasn't. Um, but my trigger then became the sound of footsteps behind me. Well, when you're at a university <laughs> with 30,000 people, you're going to hear some footsteps, you know? Right? Um, uh, so joining the track team was out of the question. 
<laughs> yeah, the track team wasn't wasn't going to yeah. happen. Um, uh, and then you know the other interesting thing, Paula, is just like you know the shame you feel uh, that you know I shouldn't I shouldn't be up so upset, and you're going through this. You know the world. Your worldview has completely changed. I'm safe. I'm not safe. I live in a world where bad things happen. I'm understood. I'm not understood. Right. I'm different. Right. I'll I'm, never be right. I'm other. I'm, the, you know, I'm in the otherness. Mm -hmm. and, my, and the way I'm healing is an embarrassment. Right. That, that, to me, even though what I experienced was different than what you experienced, you know, uh, violation is, is, is violation. And second guessing the way in which we heal is was for me one of the biggest mind fucks in in healing was feeling like i'm not doing this right. right i'm not doing it fast enough i'm stupid i'm weak i'm confused i'm needy etc etc there were so many things in your story that that i related to and you captured so well that inner monologue in the brain of the person who was trying to get that peace back that was that was taken from them and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are if a piece was taken from you how can we help the person tr try to heal right and you and you and you're right i mean and there's such a sense of shame shame like, shame i don't deserve to feel as fucked up as i feel i'm a baby i'm a baby i'm an exaggerator I'm a wimp. Uh, if I were a stronger person, this wouldn't even be bothering me. Get on with it. Get over it. Relax. Uh, move on. And then, yeah, so there, there's that. And so much negative self-talk, like, I should be over this already. And it's... Uh, I think that we're so unkind to ourselves and I think we beat ourselves up and then that self-flogging results in anxiety, depression, lack of self-worth. Isolation. Isolation, absolutely. And I think I give myself permission now to do a little bit of self-isolating. I find mm. it necessary. Uh, but... How do you how do you know when it's healthy and when it's not healthy? Well, I don't. Um, I I don't. Add. And, and another great example of the the ripple, you know, the the ripples. The ripples. I like I like that word. I'm gonna I'm totally glomming onto that word. The ripples, and they 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 go on for years. And as we were talking before we started recording, you think you get to a place where you've regained your footing and you're okay. And like like my criminal defense days, you know that that those were the first eight years of my of my life as a lawyer. Um, I felt I didn't have any PTSD then. Uh, I didn't have any sense of fear. I you know, yeah, going to court was always anxiety-inducing because you just 
you know, you've got to be on the attack. You've got to be on the defensive. You got to, you're, you're expecting people to mess with you because that's what goes down. It's probably comforting on some level because the outsides matched your insides. Right, right. It really did. And then like, you, you know, you knew the rules. It's like you're like in a boxing gym and it's like right. there's a referee there and uh, you're not going to get bloodied too badly, hopefully. Right. Um, but during those years, I didn't, I didn't have any problems post-assault. And then, as I describe in the book, 2010, uh, post-recession, I'm navigating a dying marriage, my mother slipping into dementia, uh, my then-husband and I lost our life savings uh, due to the recession and then just some carefully uh, plotted poor choices. And uh, I was, you know, literally and figuratively back into the fetal ball on the floor. And that's when the PTSD came back. And uh, I hadn't been reassaulted, nothing like that. PTSD knows how to make a good entrance. Oh, PTSD is... It's got its own uh, circular staircase that descends from like a... Debutante. It's like, okay, she's she's feeling weak. We've got her. We've got her. Let's go. Let's go. We're going to, she's down. Let's just kick her. Uh, yeah, you're right. It really does. But it's, uh, yeah, the ripples. You think you, it's like, I got this. I got this. And then 30 years later, really? I like, too, how you described uh, in the book, in the uh, immediate aftermath, how you began draining your your boyfriend mm-hmm. uh and and then you moved into a uh describe the 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 building that was comforting that you moved into yeah. uh yeah it uh, made me laugh out loud yeah um uh so you know it's summer i don't have a lot of friends anyway i don't have a strong mm-hmm. social network and uh my closest friend, uh, Kim Baldonado, she actually works for NBC uh, Los Angeles. She's one of the few people I named by their real name in the book. Right. Uh, she's a crime reporter now. Um, she was she went home to L.A. for the summer. So I was in this shithole apartment by myself. My only real friend uh, was my boyfriend, John. And he's 20 years old and a good guy, but he's 20 years old and he's not equipped to like become my caretaker. And that's basically what I needed. And I clung to him and clung to him and was so needy. And he did the best he could. And, but I nearly destroyed our relationship. And uh, then ultimately I did move into this kooky house in Berkeley that was run by these religious fanatics. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was it was an old house filled with women. You could only be there as a woman. And your father couldn't f- pass the threshold, your boyfriend, your brother, no men were allowed in there. And everybody had their own room. There was no kitchen. There on the stairwell, there was a microwave. You washed your dishes in the bathroom that you shared with these other women where you also did your bathroom things. 
And it was perfect. It was perfect, Paul. It was heaven. And because I was safe and I was on the second floor. And then I got to feel a little bit normal again. And I stopped being so clingy to my boyfriend. And then we normalized. And I bring up Kim because... She's read the book now. She was there for part of the time through this. And um, she said to me recently, oh, my God, it all makes sense now. She's like, I couldn't understand why you wanted to go live in that weird house. And she's like, but it all makes sense. And I'm like, yeah, kind of does <laughs> not the ideal housing arrangement for most uh you know by then i was a 20 year old young woman so the question then is how do we provide a version of that to people after they've been hurt uh i think if you had a clear-cut answer to that i think you should go bottle that and sell it uh that's that's what's difficult. There's no I don't think that there's a clear-cut answer because every person who suffers through trauma, whatever that trauma is, maybe that trauma is being a bystander at a Walmart in El Paso. Mm-hmm. You know? Um that person's going to be processing their trauma differently than the person who was standing next to them and what they need in terms of help and what what they need in terms of an outstretched arm down to them and their own dark personal well like mine uh it's it's going to be different for everybody and that's why it's so complicated but i think you know if i had to give an answer i would say reaching out and saying i'm here for you And um, I'm not going to judge you. Um, Maybe you're self-medicating in a way that I don't think is healthy. uh, But I'm going to back off, at least for a little while. Um, I love you. Your words matter. Let me help you even with the baby steps. Maybe you need a therapist, but you don't have the wherewithal to go Google therapists in my area and vet them let me do that for you you know like like help and then and this is the really hard part i think is be there for the long run be there when they fuck up still and they don't do what you might think they need to be doing Mm -hmm. to propel their healing forward so that's my you know 50 cent analysis what about the person who just consistently refuses any kind of help and just wants to stay stuck? Because at a certain point, it becomes enabling. And I don't know where that line is between support and enabling. And I suppose that's why support groups and therapy and all of that stuff is important because this stuff is complex and it can't be solved on an episode Right. Of a, of a podcast right. or in a sentence or two. Right. Um, yeah, because that, that person who might be getting drained, you know, they, they might need to start practicing self-advocacy and to 
pay attention to their battery to make sure that their battery isn't being drained so that they're not walking around feeling dread waking up in the morning and feeling resentful that maybe they just need a break from that person for a week or a right. month or whatever to recharge their battery and maybe they need a a a, a a script to be able to share with the person they're trying to help that they love them they're not disappearing they just need a break because they're you know, at their, at their wits end or whatever. I don't know, but these are the conversations we need to, we need to start having. Um, or everybody just needs to have their experience diminished on Facebook. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, that's like, uh, that, that's always a good part in the, in the, the ripples of the, the healing process. There's no so. shortage of that. <laughs> uh, where do you feel like, uh, your, you're at today um honestly uh i'm i'm still a little bit all over the place uh writing this book was obviously difficult it was re-triggering uh and then now that i'm in book promo phase i'm out here having very personal conversations. I'm talking about uh, a difficult time, uh, several difficult times of my life. I'm putting myself out there doing something uh, as having done something that a lot of people don't understand. It's like, wait, you're an assault victim. And then you're, you know, you're defending these terrible people. How can, how does that make sense? And again, um, I think when people read the book, uh, I think it makes perfect sense. Uh, but so, you know, I'm, I'm exposing myself and I'm exposing myself to people who, as we talked about earlier, who've diminished my experience. And that's been very hurtful. And so part of me feels strong. Um, part of me feels like if you can write about this, about these times of your life, you can do anything. So sometimes I feel incredibly empowered. A lot of days, uh, I feel, uh, very exposed, uh, very misunderstood still, uh, and anxious, you know, Mm -hmm. anxiety is my kind of go-to emotion. It, it always has been. And, uh, I hope to not say that it always will be, but, um, I'm going to, I'm going to anxiety a lot lately. Yeah. Uh, you know, the aftermath of trauma really, uh, amps up the fear of the unknown. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Uh, yesterday I was feeling very, very anxious and, um, I just, I sat on the floor of my apartment looking out the window and I had my two cats beside me and I've got a lot going on both in terms of book promotion stuff and then I'm moving long distance, uh, which is a very positive thing, Uh, a lot of happy things going on in my life, but also just a lot on my plate. And I was borderline having a panic attack and... And I reminded myself to go to that place of, but everything right now in this moment is okay. Right, Karen? Right? And 
if you can just do that sometimes, and, it, you know, I don't think anybody can do it all the time and, you know, make their way in this world. Um, but that's... It's a that great felt, tool. Oh, it was... And I can't always access it, but I accessed it yesterday and I'm like, oh my God, I feel really good right now. And, you know, if, if, if you can just try to do that more, but... Um, I wish I could be on the show as a as an expert on inner peace and how to access perfect mental health. <laughs> Maybe someday you'll have me back and I'll be, you know, an well, expert. I'd be out of a podcast <laughs> if you did that. That would be our last episode. <laughs> and then I'd be filled with anxiety about how am I going to make my living. Right. So I hope you don't find that. Right. Well, and it's interesting, too. Um, uh Oh God, I completely forgot what I was going to say, but, um, oh, like, you know, being, you know, I'm a guest on the mental illness happy hour. It's like, well, I should be a guest on the, you know, this person's got her shit together happy hour. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's a really boring podcast. I, that podcast isn't going to float. That podcast is a fraud. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. The The book is uh, What a Body Remembers. Um, and uh, just congrats on really, really capturing the what it's like to be in the skin of, uh, of the ripples and what a mindfuck it is and, and how perfectly imperfect uh, you, you navigate that and, and describe that. I know it's going to bring comfort to a lot of, a lot of people. That's, that's my hope, Paul. And thank you for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. There, well, we don't need to end this with a lie. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as, as much as I did. Uh, one of our sponsors for today is the app Calm. Uh, you know, the importance of a good night's sleep. If, if we don't sleep well, our next day blows. Our body doesn't feel right. Our brain doesn't feel right. And Calm is the number one app for sleep. With Calm, you can find a huge library of programs designed to help you get the sleep that your brain and your body need. They have soundscapes. Uh, they have over a hundred sleep stories narrated by really cool voices like uh, Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones. Uh, comedian Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. And right now, you guys get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash mental. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash mental. This is an awful moment. And I've read this one before on the podcast, but it was a long time ago, and I just love it, so I wanted to reread it again. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Shepard, and he writes, When one of my best friends had died in high school, during the candlelight vigil in the parking lot, someone began singing that dreadful Sarah McLaughlin song that is in the ASPCA ads. Before anyone else joined in, someone else blurted out, he hated that fucking song. Stop singing before I shove that candle up your ass. Everyone started laughing so hard that the tears of sadness became tears from laughing. And what started out as a solemn moment turned into a night where we reminisced about all the wild, hilarious hijinks that he was notorious for. I think he would have approved, especially about the candle. Awfulsome. 
Ah, oh, thank you for that. <laughs> oh, so easy to picture that. So easy to picture that. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Christopher, and he r- writes, uh, I love the laughter of my children. I love my wife being sexual towards me without prompting. I love being alone. I love being alone while high. U.S. history and learning to understand about people who are different ideologically and socially from myself. It takes a lot of patience and compassion, I think, to sit through listening and trying to understand somebody who is the polar opposite of us ideologically, especially in today's uh, political climate. Thank you for sharing that. This is the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself turd girl. So you know this one's brimming with self-confidence. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. She's not sure if she's been emotionally abused, but trust me, she has. She writes, it feels really weird talking about this because I don't feel like it's bad enough to classify with a term as huge as emotional abuse. But as a kid, my dad would get insanely angry over super tiny things and use that as a way to point out some really big person-defining flaw in me. He still does this. Like a couple months ago, I was home and I put a bowl in the dishwasher in a way he didn't like. So he smashed the bowl to the ground and started yelling about how I was really lazy, didn't put any effort into anything, etc., 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 which was way uncalled for. Then my mom tried to step in, asking my dad what the fuck he was doing, and he started ranting at her, telling her she had to stop babying me and how sometimes I had to get my, quote, snowflake feelings hurt and how I'm never going to amount to anything if I can't take criticism. Which, like, how the fuck did this spiral from a stupid bowl blunder? What the fuck? Essentially, he'd do that kind of shit a ton and still does it. Super small stuff, but it feels like it's taken a toll over the years. First of all, it's definitely emotional abuse. And the second thing is, you know, when people call somebody a snowflake, if anybody's a snowflake, it's your dad losing his shit over a bowl. It's it's just amazing how people will pro- project the things that they feel about themselves onto other people and shame them. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, and fuck yeah, it complicates things, particularly since he's done a lot of good things too, and the bad stuff he's done is all like objectively really minor. Darkest thoughts. I want to not exist so fucking bad. I would never do anything to hurt or kill myself, but I fear that's mainly because it would completely tear my mom apart irreparably if I did anything to hurt myself. On one hand, I'm grateful that there's someone in the world who cares a ton about me and would care greatly if I died, but that also makes me feel trapped in a weird way. Like I have an escape button, but I can't push it, although I desperately want to. Darkest secrets. I lied I've lied to get attention, particularly as a kid and young teenager. I'd lie and say all these terrible things happened to me, thinking that would make people be nice to me and care about me. Didn't really work. And once, someone noticed and called me out on it. It was the single most embarrassing, shameful moment of my life. I still 
literally have nightmares about it. God. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Honestly, if I could just ever have a sexual partner that I'm confident to be with in a remotely sexual situation, that would be rad as hell. I've never been sexually, romantically, or emotionally intimate with anyone, so the idea of having someone that would have all three is the dream. Literally a dream, though. Like, I can't imagine me ever getting intimate in any way with anyone, ever, even though sometimes I really want to. Sharing this makes me feel sad and vulnerable as hell. I never, ever talk about this in a way that's remotely serious. It's killing me not to soften not to like soften this shit with humor right now. Also, I don't think I answered your question properly because this isn't even a fantasy. Whose fantasy is as PG and lame as this? First of all, that is not lame. That it, I think is beautiful. And the other thought that popped into my head is that we don't have to wait to get into a romantic relationship to begin to experience intimacy with people because having platonic intimacy with people is a great exercise to be ready for when romantic intimacy presents itself in our lives. Because if we're not used to being platonically intimate with people, being vulnerable, trusting, opening up to each other while also having boundaries and knowing where we end and someone else begins... That If we don't do that, we're not going to suddenly learn how to do that in a romantic relationship, or at least it's not going to be easy. Because, I mean, intimacy itself is not easy. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to, and why? Saying I love you to the people I love. For some reason, vocalizing, writing, or saying anything remotely emotionally intimate in a genuine way to people makes me want to wretch, even though I know it could mean something to someone else if I tell them I love and care about them or whatever. I'm not, <coughs> excuse me, trying to put this on, on your dad, but the environment that you grew up in was not emotionally safe. And intimacy is frightening for people who didn't have a sense of emotional safety. When you walk on eggshells in your house as a kid, intimacy is going to take some work in adulthood. And it is absolutely doable. And support groups are where I learned to begin to say I love you to to friends and to hear it back and to trust. It's just the idea that something as nice and caring and loving as I love you could come from my mouth disgusts me. Like, I don't deserve to be able to say that. For some reason, I can't my, put my finger on. What, if anything, do you wish for? Confidence, the ability to be intimate, relief from anxiety, a spiritual connection to something in some way, to have a job I don't dread doing every day, to have a positive impact on other people, to show people that I care greatly for them without having to physically say it. In my experience, all of those things came from going to support groups. Have you shared these things with others? No, except for once with a therapist. I physically couldn't get it out, and the therapist didn't really push it. I never brought it up again, and I felt ashamed. How do you feel after writing these things down? LOL, do I have intimacy issues? Question mark. 
Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'm not really sure what to say other than you're not alone and solidarity and much love to you, brother, sister, gender-neutral compadre. Thank you for filling that out. I really hate to sound like a broken record, but not only would you benefit from the right support group, but the right support group would benefit from you because it sounds like you have a lot of love to give and you're seeking. And if nothing changes, nothing changes. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Urban Dweller, and she writes, I love fresh out of the dryer socks. Oh, that is such a good one. And fresh out of the dryer sheets. Those are good, too. Uh, The feeling is you're just about to drift off to sleep. Chicken noodle soup on a cold, snowy day. Oh, that is a great one. Baking bread. I've never baked bread, but oh, the smell of bread baking. And the sound of children playing. I love the sound of children baking bread. Child labor in the 20s. Oh, the smell of baking bread. I don't know how it was that I smelled baking bread in the 20s. Just a bakery full of six-year-olds. I'm sure that bread didn't get fucked up. There's a photographer was a photographer named Lewis Hines who had a really profound effect on getting child labor laws enacted. And one of the projects that he photographed a lot was child labor in sweatshops in the around the turn of the century. Uh, I guess it would have been maybe the early 1900s. And his pictures are amazing because they're so... Uh, they're so clear. A lot of times, old-timey photographs can be a little blurry, but his the the focus is so sharp. You can see like the texture on the shoelaces of of these kids in the factory and the dirt under their fingernails, and it makes it so real that it it. When I looked through that book, I just I could feel just I don't know. I guess that's great art when somebody can bring feelings out in you. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Salty Boy. He identifies as gay. He's in his 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, My mother was generally inappropriate around us, but something you mentioned in a previous episode made me realize how serious it was. After I'd just come out to her at the age of 15, for some reason she took that opportunity to tell me all about her sexual history. Gee, Mom, I really don't need to hear you laughing about being molested by your employers as a teen. In fact, I'm really fucking disturbed. Can we please, for the love of God, go back to talking about me being gay? He's also been physically and emotionally abused. My mother would beat me and my siblings when we were young kids as punishment, but would never tell us why it was happening. So, of course, all we retained was mistakes are to be feared, never make them. 
When my parents divorced, my mom only wanted me for the child support checks, and it was very apparent. I felt incredibly objectified, and I still do after she ditched me to move across the country while I was still in high school. I felt like I was tossed in the trash by a garbage monster. Any positive experiences with the abusers? After my cousin molested me when I was two, my mom did her best to keep her family from doing anything to us kids. It pisses me off that we still had to see them every year, though. Darkest thoughts. I'm scared of what I could do during a dissociative state. I've done embarrassing shit before without realizing it, and I'm worried I could do something dangerous instead. It doesn't help that people at work have been treating me like shit. I don't want to hurt anyone, yet I do. It fright. It's frightening. Darkest Secrets. Uh, I'm a DID alter and barely anyone knows I exist as my own person. For those of you that don't know, DID stands for Dissociative Identity Disorder, uh, which used to be known as Multiple Personality Disorder. Um, I'm a DID alter and barely want anyone knows I exist as my own person. If they do know me, then they might not know I'm an alter until I have to awkwardly tell them why I disappeared for several months. Also, I've lied a lot because as a kid, I was taught that I don't know is never an acceptable answer. I've made my peace with that and I'm doing much better. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Mostly gory stuff involving my boyfriend, like cutting him up while sweet-talking him. <coughs> Excuse me. I think of it every day, and it makes me smile. Then again, anything involving my boyfriend makes me smile. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my bullies, I didn't have to exist, but you made it happen, so fuck you. Man, I wish I knew the word cunt as a fifth grader. <laughs> What, if anything, do you wish for? Stability. I just want to move out and get a new job. Maybe then I'll be ready for college. Maybe. Have you shared these things with others? People are generally understanding when I tell them about the abuse, and I'm glad. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel okay. I mostly did this to try and get out of a dissociative episode. I don't know if it worked, though. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? To fellow alters... And for the, uh, those that uh, aren't familiar with the term, it's um, uh, when when someone has dissociative identity disorder, uh, they have uh, multiple um, personalities, if you will, uh, and they are called uh, alters, from what I understand. Not an expert, but I did cook chicken on basic cable for 16 years, and that's got to count for something. To fellow alters, I see you and I love you. You exist and you matter. Thank you for that. This is from the Love Survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Eliza. And she writes, What I love is a quiet morning where I will take a twig stove, not sure what that is, and a hammock, and musily for a hike in the local woods. I'll string the hammock, make coffee, eat my breakfast, and relax, swinging in the breeze, listening to birds and bugs and the rustle of leaves, one of the few things that relaxes me enough to take a full breath. Bliss. Wow, that sounds so amazing. Oh, 
That has turned into me hating you for having that and me not. That took a terrible turn. I curse you. I cast you to hell with all my fury and might. And I'm now performing a voodoo ceremony on you. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself finally, hopefully, the light at the end of the tunnel. She writes, I've recently started taking steps to manage my anxiety that started getting out of hand after having my second child. Looking for a creative outlet I can insert into my crazy daily schedule led me to start painting. I usually find myself skipping tracks when I'm listening to music in the car because nothing, quote, feels right. After spending the day painting, on my way home, I shocked myself because I was able to enjoy every song in its entirety. I fucking love that. I love that because it's such a great example of self-care and the ability to be present. To get rid of that restless feeling like we're not in the right place doing the right thing and somehow we're missing out on life. And that feeling when we feel like we're in the stream of life and we're okay with reality is so, so amazing. It's so hard to get to though. It's so hard to get to. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Mary. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, I dated many men who would only want one thing, sex. I was starved of love. I so badly wanted to connect with someone and have someone be around me that I endured years of painful sex with men who would never consider me. Once I told an ex-boyfriend that while in the middle of sex, I had to that will in the middle of sex. I think that's a typo. Once I had told an ex-boyfriend that while in the middle of sex, I'd asked him to stop, that he was hurting me, and he replied, hold on, I'm almost done. And I did just that. Another time, a man I hooked up with had just finished the act, and I went to cuddle him. He put his arm around me gently and told me, wow, you're really lonely, aren't you? Oh my God. Oh, God, such a such a great example of just somebody blaming the other person for their issue. Uh, I just stayed quiet. When I was 18, I was at a friend's apartment. My boyfriend at the time was leaving to work, and I walked him to his car to say goodbye. On my way back, a man stopped me in the stairwell and told me he was a photographer. He flashed his card at me, then said I was beautiful and I'd be a great model. He said he wanted to see something and took me to the corner of the stairs. I was wearing a skirt. He knelt down and moved my panties and touched me. I panicked, froze, and then told him I had to go. When I got back to the apartment, I told my friend and called my boyfriend, who came back immediately. They asked what happened. I explained, and they wanted to call the cops. I was scared. I was crying and feeling traumatized, and I didn't want to relive this again with cops. I was dressed provocatively, and I guess at the time, I felt like I did this to myself. It was my fault. Well, because of that, they both started suggesting I was faking this and making it up. I never dressed that way again, and when I told my father and current boyfriend about it, 
I never told them the full story. My father cried, and my boyfriend held me and reassured me. I'm so thankful I have them in my life. So many people don't understand the the freeze aspect when somebody is being put into a situation that's that's traumatizing. They always think that, oh, why didn't you run? Why didn't you speak up for yourself? Why didn't you say something? She's also been physically abused and emotionally abused. Abused. She writes, I guess I was physically abused, question mark. My mother used to whip me with a belt or smack me with a sandal when I was really young. It wasn't often, but I learned to not piss her off. Ha ha. My mother's Mexican upbringing was the same, if not way worse. So while it doesn't make it right, I don't blame her for emulating that. And, you know, the, the, the point isn't, to demonize other people. The point is to give weight to what happened to us so we can process those feelings. And a lot of time people people will conflate the two and feel like to have compassion for ourselves, that little little us that went through something, or even the adult us that went through something traumatizing, that it means that we have to take someone else down, and it doesn't. Um That was all she had to go off of. My maternal grandmother was evil. The woman was cold and would yell at my mother all the time. My mother had cancer when I was eight, and I remember that winter hearing my mother and grandmother screaming at each other downstairs. It was in Spanish, so I don't know what they said, but while peeking, I saw my grandmother smack my mother over the head with a two-liter bottle. My mother had cancer. I was so scared and mad all at the same time. About four years later, my mother died, and at her funeral, when I was crying next to her corpse, my grandmother touches my shoulder and says to me, you have to stop crying because if you keep crying, your mother won't go to heaven. By the way, also the title of the least successful children's book, After I regained my composure, I spent the rest of that night with my friends smiling and laughing because I didn't want to get yelled at for crying. My father and I lived with my grandmother after my mother's death, and suspiciously, the food that my father ate always made him sick. We all ate the same food, but he literally was poisoned and almost didn't recover. We both packed up one day and left and never looked back. Wow. Any positive experiences with the abusers. Despite the infrequent beatings, my mother was a beautiful woman who suffered so much abuse in her life. And despite that, she was still an angel to others. My mother was always supporting me in my endeavors. If I was doing bad in a class, she would scold me, but then sit down and teach me. She would draw and color these beautiful pictures. One day on my birthday, she picked me up from school, and when she opened the front door to the house, I saw a trail of Pokemon booster packs leading upstairs. The smile on her face was beautiful, and it is honestly one of my happiest memories. The booster packs led all the way upstairs to my room, and on my bed was two starter decks. She learned and played the card game with me. She bought two Game Boys and both copies of Pokemon Red and Blue. She played her own copy so she could trade Pokemon with me. My mother was a nurse and the responsible parent. My dad had issues with alcohol, so he was more of the stay-at-home parent. Despite her long work hours and soon-to-be development of cancer, she, was, she always made time for me. 
Even after she had cancer, she would teach me to bake cakes, watch Dragon Ball Z with me. She will always be an angel in my eyes. Wow. Wow. And what a great example of how complicated people can be. But man, that's so beautiful that your mom really, really wanted to know you, really wanted to see the real you. Darkest thoughts. Every day the thought, I just want to die, runs through my head at least 12 times. Only on a few occasions have I actually looked into methods of doing it, but they all suck, so I think I'll just live. Ha ha. Darkest secrets. The boyfriend who is abusive during sex I mentioned earlier cheated on me with my best friend, who might I add said he was disgusting and I should leave him. Uh, that boyfriend broke up with me. I was oblivious to the signs of cheating at the time, and he got me pregnant. I chose the abortion immediately. When I called the abortion clinic, I explained my situation, and the lady over the phone said, because of your situation, we can do the procedure for 300 It's normally 500 I told her, oh, I'm not paying. No, leave it at 500 It was petty revenge, but it felt so good. Shit. I still still feel good about it. Um, she didn't fill out uh, an answer to the question, uh, what are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? Uh, or what you, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To the question, what, if anything, do you wish for? She writes, I wish that my father could finally catch a break and have some peace for himself. While he was not perfect, he did the best that he could in a less than perfect circumstance. He had suffered the loss of a child, a wife, and an uncle. He grew up with a crazy, unstable mother and no father. He had to pick up dead bodies in order to have money to raise me. His job was to move bodies from the place of death to the morgue. Not sure what that's called. That's called a body trolley. <laughs> I could sit down for a half hour and enjoy trying to come up with the names of that. Uh, you mean he drove the corpse coaster? <laughs> uh, I truly wish for his remaining years on this planet to be peaceful, stable, and happy. Have you shared these things with others? I talked to my boyfriend who is studying psychology. He is my rock and so supportive. I'm blessed to have him. How do you feel after writing these things down? I cried when writing about my mom, and it's been months since I cried. While it was a brief cry, it felt good letting it all out. Thinking about her hurts too much, so I avoid it. I feel guilty. I want to remember her. I just wish it didn't hurt so much. Thank you for that. Sending you, sending you some love. Everybody that, that fills these out these especially these shame and secret surveys which can be so heavy i appreciate it so much you guys going back into that darkness and rooting around and struggling to put it into words it, it is such a big part of not only this podcast but how i experience doing this podcast and what i get out of it which is a lot this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself LBJ, and she writes, I love the bottom row of teeth in my dog's mouth. Yes, yes. And my late dog, Herbert, had the best bottom row of teeth, and he had kind of an underbite 
and one of the little tiny baby corn teeth was missing. Oh, I miss him. I love my boyfriend's ridiculously soft feet. I love birthday cakes for me with speedboats on them. I love when my students get off the bus in the morning and run to share a hug with me. Mm, those are beautiful. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Autistic Child-Free Ex-Mormon. She writes, working on art, sipping coffee, watching a nostalgic movie, and my two cats laying near me purring. Five years ago, I would not have imagined I could feel as much peace as I do now. I would not have imagined I would have my own place with a loving boyfriend and have the freedom to work on art without feeling judgment or shame. I never would have imagined I could feel successful despite my inability to graduate elementary school, high school, or any class I attempted to take in college. I work two minimum wage jobs, live in a very crappy apartment complex, and I couldn't be happier. I have the freedom to fully express myself through art, and my boyfriend has been the most positive, encouraging, and supportive influence in my life. He's helped me grow as a person, and his encouragement and love has caused me to learn how to redefine what real success means to me. I am valuable and loved, and not because of what I have achieved through school or work or financial gain. All I have to do is be myself. It took me a little over 30 years to figure that out. I no longer fear judgment from my family. I no longer feel like I have to prove something to them. I no longer hide what I truly enjoy. I am free! Exclamation point. Wow. That is... That is the the holy grail of self-realization, self-actualization, whatever, whatever you want to call it, but to be authentic, to practice self-care. I mean, that, oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you for that. And thanks again to my, my guest, Karen Stefano, and all you guys that filled out the surveys, those of you that support the podcast financially, those of you that support it emotionally, that send me nice emails, you know, some some days I'll be feeling a little, I don't know, a little out of it, a little sideways, maybe you know, even a little bit down. And somebody will send me an email saying how much the podcast means to them. And it just, uh, you know, puts a smile on my face. So thank you to, uh, to all of you guys. And uh, never forget that you're not alone. And your brain may be telling you that, but tell your brain to take five minutes out, go fuck itself, get a bite to eat, take a nap, and never come back. <laughs> I don't know why you tell it to do all those things if it's never coming back. Because you're polite. Even to the mean voice in your head, you're still a conscientious, giving person. Anyway, you're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.